You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com, and joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's your friend and mine, Ben Folks. Ben, uh, no UFC event this weekend. Oh, thank God. What are you going to do, man? What I don't are you going to do with yourself? You know, I think that uh, I might try reading a book. I've heard, I, it's been a while since I've done that. I've heard that that can be pleasurable. Uh, who knows? Who knows what I'll do? Maybe I'll actually leave the house on a Saturday night for a change just to see what the outside world is like. For all I know, people do awesome stuff every single Saturday night, and I, I don't even get to see it. Yeah, that'd be weird to go out and find out what was going on, on out there. You know what I, What book I've heard is really good is the Matt Hughes autobiography. Oh, God. Don't don't you start with me. <laughs> no, you sent it to me on the That's internet true. this week on the email. How did I I had never seen this before. I saw it on Twitter where somebody had mentioned that like in 2010, Sean McCorkle, big sexy, he did like a chapter by chapter summary of Matt Hughes's book on the UG uh and it is amazing. Uh warning to the listeners out there, your opinion of Matt who Matt Hughes will likely not improve as a result of reading Sean McCorkle's chapter by chapter summary. Definitely the best thing Sean McCorkle has ever done and I feel like we need to give him his propers for it because Sir Nigel Longstock seems to like to make Sean McCorkle one of his whipping boys on Master Tweet Theater. Yeah, he's, so. been, he's been put on some sort of Master Tweet Theater uh, no-fly list, I think. But this, I mean, this is deserving of recognition. Even if it comes a few years too late, Sean McCorkle perhaps not appreciated in his own time. Uh, but if you haven't read it, go on the UG and look for that. It is disturbing and astounding and just amazing all the way around. The far and away the best part is where McCorkle talks about how he went to Borders to read the last two yes. chapters. Yes. <laughs> also how McCorkle seems like just privately weirded out by the fact that Matt Hughes continues to refer to his wife and the mother of his children as a mom uh, throughout the book. That yeah, is weird. Publicly weirded out, I yeah. would say. Not necessarily privately. Uh, are we going to talk about how you needlessly and erroneously put me on blast on Twitter this morning? I don't I don't think that either that it was either needless or erroneous. I feel like it was both of those things. I Well, here, let's tell the tale uh, without the Ben Folk's social media spin. Uh, You're saying we're entering a no-spin zone? We're entering a no-spin zone here. You contacted me earlier this morning because your plan for the day was for us to record the co-main event podcast an hour early so then you could go to a bar and watch soccer while I finish the podcast and put it online. Yeah. That's about right? That's perfect. And my response to you was, I don't know, like I'm going to have to check... Uh, with with my job. I don't know what kind of day I'm going to have. I checked with my job. It seemed like it was going to be cool. So I said, yeah, okay, fine. We can record at two instead of three. So you can go to a bar and drink beer and have fun with your friends while I do all the work for the podcast that we host together. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I looked online and you had already put me on blast on Twitter. Well, like, already like 15 minutes uh, hap- like went by between those times when uh, you know I suggested the time change. You were kind of a dick about it. 
then 15 minutes went by and then you said yes. Uh, so see, once again, I had to react. We've entered once again into the Ben Folk spin zone here. And, and for the people <laughs> at home who don't know you personally, I would describe this as like a, a classic Ben Folk's personal interaction where like you <laughs> want to go to a bar to drink and watch soccer. I'm going to do all the rest of our work on the podcast. And in your own words, a minute ago, you just said that I was quote kind of a dick about it. Yeah. You know, I and you know, I hate. I got to be honest. I got to keep it real. You're kind of a dick about it. Yeah, you're not keeping it real in any way, <laughs> shape, or form. All right, let's do this. Three rounds this week for the co-main event podcast, as usual. In round number one, the last time we recorded the CME, Chael Sonnen was a member in good standing of the UFC's active roster, getting ready for a high-profile pay-per-view bout against Vitor Belfort. Today, he's retired. Oops. Ain't that some shit? That is some shit. And in round number two, Rory McDonald's just going to do what he does. Shut people down, beat the shit out of them, act weird after it, be super polite, sort of morose, say he's going to be the champion someday, go straight from the fight to the American Apparel Store on Granville Street and see how many pairs of Toms he can buy with his win bonus. And in round number three, Demetrius Mighty Mouse, Mighty Mouse Johnson is a goddamn genius, but more like a James Joyce-style genius than like a Jerry Bruckheimer-style one. Yeah. Not not exactly Michael Bay, is what you're saying. All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? I assume since we're recording this early that Sir Nigel Longstock's not coming. He's on assignment. He's on assignment. Uh, but right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Danny Fitzgerald. He writes, was Dana White's decision to cut Jason Hyde justified, or was the Kansas City bandit merely a victim of Dana White having a very bad day? I can't call it justified, to tell you the truth. I mean, I do think that there there ought to be some kind of repercussions. You can't put your hands on a referee. We all know that. Again, it's not like he punched the referee in the throat. You know, he gave him a little bit of a shove when he got up after the stoppage, and he was arguably not in the best state of mind after just being rocked by a couple punches and had his skull hammer fisted on pretty good there. The thing that, to me, though, that's the craziest about this is Dana White saying that he didn't even watch it. Like, when he was talking about it, it seemed like he still hadn't seen it. And that was, like, is, proud of it. That is strange. That is very strange. Called it a no-brainer. Said, he, I just heard about it, didn't even need to see it. He's cut. He's out of here. You can't tell me if John Jones, if he, like, had, had pushed a ref, he'd be fired. Well, no, obviously not. I don't think any UFC star puts their hands on a referee. I don't think Where he, do you think the line is? or she is going to get fired. Can Ryan Bader do it? Uh, boy, that's a, that is a good question. Shogun? I think if the UFC doesn't necessarily see any value in you or doesn't recognize you as a contender, you will probably get cut there. It does seem very strange that Dana White said that, or implied that he hadn't watched it, because when you actually watch it, the infraction uh, is not as bad as it sounds. No. It sounds a lot worse than it is. I'm going to disagree with you a little bit, though. I think the company, well within its rights to cut Jason High here, I think that we have to be honest with ourselves and say that... Uh, if we're coming out against it, it's probably because we like Jason High as a person. He seems like a smart guy and a, uh, a guy who, who knows his way around social media uh, and, and a good guy. And, and frankly, a guy who didn't look terrible in dropping down to 155 pounds to fight uh, one of the top guys in that division. Uh, but, I mean, if it's somebody that we don't like, we're probably in favor of them getting cut just to sort of draw the line in the sand that, that, that you can't push the referee. I mean, you're right. He is a likable guy, and so it's easy to get behind him. And, you know, if it were somebody else, maybe we wouldn't feel that way. But I do still feel like 
you know, there's other things you could do to send the message that that's not okay. You can fine him, you can suspend him, you can do both those things. I mean, I guess you could even cut him, but you should, aren't you curious? Don't you even, like, you hear a guy, one of the fighters in your organization pushed a ref? You don't even just, like, want to see? Just just to check it out? I'm going to say this. I think it's, wanna see a GIF? it's sort of a sad happening for a good dude like Jason Hyde to have his UFC career end that way. And I hope that it's not forever because I don't think that we are in a Paul Daly punching Josh Kostrick after the bell type situation and here. See, Dana White said that he thought that what Jason Hyde did, which again, he had not seen, was worse than what Paul Daly did. And I think that's just absolutely not true. I mean, you can make the argument, okay, it was against a ref and not against a fellow competitor, but trying to sucker punch a guy after the fight is over, that to me is so much worse than like getting up dazed and shoving a ref. Right, yeah, I think if you shove a ref, you have to kind of expect that you might get cut, but I will say in Jason High's defense, like he did kind of get jobbed pretty badly there. Uh, in fact... This this was one of those sequences where, uh, you know, Rafael Dos Anjos is on top of him, punching him in the back of the head so many yes. times that when he looks at the referee, oftentimes guys look at the referees, the referee like, well, I'm being the shit out of this guy. You going to stop this? Like when he looks at the referee, it's almost like, are you going to let me keep getting away with this? Like I am <laughs> just blasting him right in the back of the head. So you can understand Jason High's frustration. Still, I think if you shove a ref, man, you, you just got to got to take your medicine. OK, what about, though, when guys do the thing sometimes? Times where like they're angry and hurt and everything after getting up after a stoppage and the ref is like you know kind of trying to stand there and hold on to him and wave him off and they do like the kind of one arm like kind of get off of me I'm walking over to my corner to be mad kind of thing like just kind of brushing their way past him you know it's not exactly a shove but it's actually it's not exactly not a shove either you know there's a lot of gray area stuff that could happen there yeah, and you're right I think it is sort of a fine line I think when you go two two handed shove obvious purposeful shove i think that at that point you you cross the line i mean but I mean, there's also no knowing how like what kind of mental shape he was in right you know like uh guys get knocked out they they try to go day one jujitsu on the referee try to try to break out their their guillotine chokes sometimes so you know we've seen this kind of stuff before this one seemed purposeful though uh like i said i i seemed it seems like jason high's a good dude i hope that he's able to fight his way back to the ufc it seems like world series of fighting is interested in him so i think that would be a good landing spot for him uh maybe get a couple wins there hopefully come back but uh can't shove the ref man. well and i'm sure we'll talk about this more in round one but i think the thing that made this seem like more uh egregious like more wrong-headed on the ufc's part is the fact that Kind of the same week, basically, that Chael Sonnen fails his second drug test and Dana White goes on TV to help defend him. Uh, Jason Hyde does a thing that Dana White didn't even see. Jason Hyde's the one who gets fired. Uh, Chael Sonnen, uh, you know, probably going to be a, a member in good standing and some form of the UFC for some time to come. Right, yeah. I don't think you can go looking for justice or sense in this particular company's personnel decisions. But uh, next question this week comes to us from Gavin Devlin. He writes, my expectations were set pretty low for the return of Andre Arlovsky. Not low enough, apparently. Despite the lackluster split decision win over Brendan Schaub, he's clearly not a UFC caliber fighter anymore. Your thoughts on the return of the pit bull? Yeah, not exactly the, you know, Kicking the door in and, and announcing his return with authority there for Andre Arlovsky. I don't really know what I was expecting. I thought this was going to be one of those uh, one-round heavyweight fights, also known as the good kind of heavyweight fights. Both of them kind of have suspect chins, so it seemed like it was going to be a, a contest to see who could land the first solid punch. 
Uh, well, and it may have been. We don't know. Right? <laughs> we still don't know. Uh, yeah. So what happened instead? One of those fights where I can see how Brendan Schaub feels like he won it. I can see how uh, you know it seemed like most media outlets scored it for Brendan Schaub. At the same time, after a fight like that, I I can't work up too much outrage. Yeah, the the craziest thing, and we talked about this while we were watching the show, the craziest thing about Andre Arlovsky is that he's one of those dudes when you find out that he's 35, uh, you're like, really? Only 35? And then you see him, and he looks exactly the same as yeah. what, like the last time that he was in the UFC. So we have this... Uh, a perception of him in our head as a guy that, you know, got cut and lost those four fights in a row in like 2009 to 2010, whatever it was. Uh, and we kind of think of him as like washed up. And then you see him and you're like, oh, wow, he just looks looks like it, he could have been in frozen animation, suspended yeah. animation this entire time. Uh, but then obviously does not have a great performance against Brendan Schaub. Well, you know, when we look at Andre Arlovsky's recent record, it's, it's easy to say that he's been on a tear, you know, with, uh, <clears throat> about uh, six, six or seven wins and only one loss dating back to about 2011. That one loss, though, is the unanimous decision, decision loss to Anthony Johnson. So a guy who is now down at, at the 205-pound ranks. Uh, if you were looking for, like, a clue that maybe we weren't going to get into prime Andre Arlovsky, it's an awful lot of evidence there to support the fact that that maybe we weren't going to see a guy who was going to sprint to the title. Yeah, it's to me it seems much worse for Brendan Schaub than it does for Arlovsky. Because I think, as you said, people didn't expect a whole lot from Andre Arlovsky. They were just surprised that he still looked like Andre Arlovsky and, and you know, didn't look like a washed-up version of his his former self uh but for brendan schaub to go out there like that this was the opportunity to get to fight a guy who's a little past his, his expiration date uh and put yourself back on the map in a heavyweight division where hell you only have to really win one or two in a row kind of impressively and you're you're on the radar for title contender uh and he just didn't do much with it you know it seemed like a really careful effort on his part and uh just not a whole lot happened and for them to him to kind of have this like indignant air afterwards, like, oh, I can't believe I got robbed there. And everybody's like, yeah, I don't really feel like anybody won that fight. Yeah, you know, now that you mention it, I do kind of feel like I would like to see one more fight from Andre Arlovsky just to see like, you know, what he can do. I know that he said he felt terrible after this this win. Uh, so I'd like to see one more fight from him in the UFC just to see if this was an anomaly in, in terms of its shittiness. Uh, whereas Brennan Schaub is a dude where I'm like, eh, we kind of know what he's going to do. So It always seems, though, like he is capable of so much more. You know, he seems like a really good athlete and a good fighter and a smart guy. And you just kind of waiting for him to, to put it all together at the right time. It seems like uh, maybe, I don't know if he, he has concerns about his own chin, but he just seems like way more careful now. Uh, and that doesn't seem to suit his style very much. The next question this week comes to us from Corey Weichert. He writes, Ryan Jimmo says my arm is broken and OSP responds by grabbing an arm and cranking the fuck out of it. I've been trying to introduce my girlfriend to MMA and she was very upset by OSP's behavior. What's the final verdict, fellas? Is Jimmo at fault for telling his opponent about his injury instead of simply tapping out? Is OSP kind of a scumbag for ignoring the verbal submission? Or is this just a case of my girlfriend being too sensitive about combat sport? Uh, you know, Man, Corey Witcher just just begging us to put his girlfriend on blast here. On a CME. little, a little bit there, but I like I would never have come up with the assertion that uh, Ovin St. Prue is kind of a scumbag uh, for for cranking on Ryan Jimmo's arm. I mean, if you're involved in an MMA MMA fight with a guy, uh, 
it seems like you're you're gonna do whatever you can within the rules to try to win it. And if a dude, if like you think a dude has an injured knee, you're gonna kick him in it, yeah. right? So and like we've I seen that a bunch, you know, where uh, Tyron Woodley and Carlos Condit, where it seems pretty clear that Carlos Condit is having some kind of knee issue, so go ahead and kick him in it, or with. Uh, uh, James Krause and Jamie Varner, where Jamie Varner clearly having issues with his ankle or foot, so let's see what we can do to make that worse. You know, the other guy would do it to you. Right. You're in a fight for money, so yeah, you're going to go ahead and, and attack that weak point. Uh, I just I don't think that we can really have too many expectations uh, from OSP in that situation. It's a weird thing to do from Ryan Jemo's part to just say, my arm is broken. I mean, if you're saying that you want out, say, tap, tap, tap or something, you know, like... You don't say my arm is broken. That's a weird thing to say. And I could understand if OSP was like, is he trying to run some kind of some kind of game on me here? Uh, is he trying to like catch me off guard? Is he playing possum somehow? Uh, you know, go ahead and, and grab the nearest arm to you, yank on it, and see what happens. I, I think that's perfectly reasonable. Yeah, I do too. I guess the the flip side of that coin would be that I also understand why somebody who wasn't really into MMA might find that distasteful. Yes, though, okay. also, uh, and maybe that's just something that we need to acknowledge about the sport is that uh, you know people are going to find parts of it to be not quite to their liking, uh, and perhaps Corey Weichard's girlfriend is 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 one of those people, and. Uh, you know, if she decides that, that it's not for her, more power to her as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, uh, but if she's dating a, a, an MMA fan, it might be a lot of Saturday nights either on the couch or, uh, you know, having a girls' night or something, you know. It, well, I mean, it might be good for the average UFC fan to spend a few less Saturday nights on the on the couch. That could be. Don't you think? Going, that, out, going outside, seeing what's out there, just that, like you were talking about at the top that, of the show. That could be. You know, come on, though. It is a weird thing for, for Ryan Jimmo to do, though, to say my arm is broken. What do you, what do yeah, you hope again, is like, going to accomplish Who, who knows what his mindset is at that point if, if you had just suffered a broken arm in the middle of a, of a televised cage fight? Like, uh, I assume you don't want to tap out with the broken arm. Um I guess he could have tapped with the other arm, could have said tap. I don't know, man. It's the, it's the, I, I think that the same thing is true about OSP, like grabbing his arm and wrenching it, which I would describe as like a heat of battle kind of maneuver. Like the same thing is essentially true for Ryan Jimmo. Like if he had to, to do over again and, and could make the decision from a calm and, and, uh, uh, sane point of view, he would probably do it differently. But yeah. who, who knows in the, in the moment what's going to happen? Yeah. Or maybe you're hoping that you'll say, my arm is broken, and you'll come to an understanding that, okay, we won't do anything to that arm. Which arm is it, bro? Well, but was, also, was he saying that to, to Ovin St. Pru, or was he trying to say that to the referee? Like, maybe he was verbally tapping out. Like, that that seems like it would do the trick, right? It seems like the only outcome you could really expect there. Also, if you're Ovin St. Pru, like, maybe there's a small chance that dude is lying. Yeah, you know, no, that's maybe what I'm he's saying. going with the boss rooting. Like when the guy thinks he has you in a choke, you start making choke noises. Yeah. So he uh, he burns his arms out trying really hard to finish it. Maybe what happened was the guy's leg broke, and in order to distract you so you won't notice his weakness, he says, "My arm's broken." Yeah, like putting the uh, ankle sleeve on the ankle that's not hurt. That's right, right? exactly. What? <laughs> That's some ring psychology right there. Let's do the last one of these. Wayne F. Last last piece of listener mail. This week comes from Ray, Wayne F. He writes, Dana White has declared Tough 19 to be the worst season ever. And even if, if that's an exaggeration, Tough could definitely use a shot in the arm. Seeing as season 20 of the U.S. version of the program carries a ton of weight behind it, crowning the first ever UFC 115-pound champ, would season 21 be a good time to have another season with fighters currently under UFC contract and grant the winner a title shot? Tough has gotten awfully stale, and the promise of a title shot to the eventful eventual winner 
uh, of the show makes it sound a hell of a lot more important. Plus, it would be like taking a shot at the Bellator format, and I think that would make Dana White giggle. But even more importantly, it could potentially turn a guy on the verge of breaking out into a legit star, which is something the US, UFC could use more of. Thoughts, please discuss, and thank you. Now, see, I was going to say uh, season 21... Oh, I was hoping that we would just wrap this thing up after season twenty, right? There's, <laughs> there, re- there's you thought re- we'd pull the plug after an even twenty. Yeah, well, I mean that would that, there would be some uh, some poetic justice there, right? That we think season twenty is going to be good. They're going to crown the first women's strawweight champion in UFC history. That's the one where uh, Anthony Pettis and Gilbert Melendez are going to be the coaches, right? Uh, so, I mean, if you're looking to go out on a high note, it seems like that would be the one. The one to do, and uh, have you not met the UFC? <laughs> no, I'm. Do you not know who um, these people are? I'm familiar with them. They gimmick. are going to run the shit into the they ground. They already have. <laughs> it was run into the ground ten seasons ago. And the thing about Dana White going on Tough 19, I'm sure you've seen the video and uh, and doing his weird thing with with uh, Frankie Edgar and and BJ Penn talking about how he doesn't think any of the guys in the house want it, which is another thing I think that like begs for some some conversation. Maybe we can talk about that in some a minute. But this is like the first time that Dana White or the UFC has ever acknowledged that maybe there's something wrong with the Ultimate Fighter. So to answer Wayne F's question, yes, goddammit, I would like to see them do almost anything different with this show, uh, including but not limited to canceling it and just coming up with something totally new. But the reason that they won't take him up on his idea of taking guys who are currently under contract and, and throwing them in there to make it seem more meaningful um, is because if you think about what the Ultimate Fighter is for the UFC, uh, it's a really, I guess, efficient, low-cost generator of new fighters. Because you get these guys that nobody's really ever heard of for the most part when they come on the show. You kind of make them into, I don't want to say stars at, at this point because that just makes words seem meaningless. But you you turn them into you know known people, to at least to, to the small segment of the MMA population who's still watching every goddamn season of The Ultimate Fighter. And you don't have to pay them much because like, they're nobodies when you get them. And you get them to, to sign on to these contracts that are pretty long-term and don't pay them a bunch of money, even if things go as great as they can possibly go. Even if you win out uh, and then you get into the UFC and you're still like under this contract for the next couple of years... Uh, and it's a cheap talent generator, and those guys kind of go through that cycle and uh, run their course. A lot of them don't stick around in the UFC for very long, uh, and, but then there's another season of guys coming up right behind them. And that might be why, though, we're talking about, man, what is it with these guys on this uh, season of the show? It seems like they don't want it. Maybe because there just aren't as many good fighters as you need to keep doing this stuff over and over again. Maybe you've just reached the point where like, now you're getting guys who under no other circumstances would really be at this level, but the Ultimate Fighter allows them to have that opportunity. Right, yeah. I think that there's some evidence to suggest that that's true, too. I mean, we've got this strawweight season coming up where it'll be the first season with uh, women's strawweights. We expect there to be a lot of talent. Well, we know there's a lot of talent because we've seen the cast list going to be on that show. Prior to that, your best season of recent memory is probably the one that had both TJ Dillashaw and Jod Dotson on it, and that was yet another situation where it was like you had not done the Ultimate Fighter for those weight classes before so there was just more talent to go around to get on the show you get into like uh uh, welterweights middleweights light heavyweights 
I, it seems like it's kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel out yeah. there. They're just, I guess that the, the sport itself isn't producing enough of guys in those weight classes to kind of keep uh, the ultimate fighter flush with quality uh, contestants, I guess you would say. Yeah. And, and that makes sense. I mean, it seems like that probably had to happen at some point, but I don't see them uh, saying like, Hey, that's it. The ultimate fighter has run its course. We're not going to do this thing anymore. That fills out our undercards with uh really cheap guys uh, who people still know beyond what their abilities suggest they should be uh, known. Uh, no way. The UFC is going to just keep doing it uh, and keep telling you how, okay, this season sucked, but the next season, oh my God, I've never seen fights like these. Let's talk a little bit about this thing where Dana White goes to the Ultimate Fighter and talks to Frankie Edgar and BJ Penn about this being the worst season. Because this is the kind of thing we've, we've kind of heard, we've, this, we've seen Dana White give uh, some version of this pep talk kind of again and again on the ultimate fighter. Do you this want to is, be a fucking fighter? Right. This, this is, is just not, the reheated version. Of right. This is, we've not, this is, we've seen this stuff before from Dana White and it always strikes a strange chord with me because I always think, man, so the UFC sets up a single elimination tournament. The point of which is to win. And if you do, you get a contract with the UFC, uh, six figure contract. Right, yeah. Kind of implying that if you don't win, well, you're sort of taking your chances. That's what we all thought the first season. Right, and we've seen a lot of guys who don't win the Ultimate Fighter Tournament get absorbed into the UFC anyway, but I'd really like to see some statistics on it because like, as there get to be more and more seasons of the Ultimate Fighter and there's more and more winners, it feels to me like the guys who uh, don't win the tournament and don't go very far in the tournament aren't really, they don't become UFC mainstays very often would be my perception of it. So it seems to me like if you are involved in the ultimate fighter you want to do the smart thing to win the fucking tournament like you don't want to go out there and throw caution to the wind in hopes of impressing dana white because for all you know he won't be impressed you'll lose and then where the hell are you besides Newtown, north dakota fighting in the main event of ruckus at the casino 42 you know like if that sounds good. Let's go to that. If your style of fighting is to take a dude down and wrestle with him and you think that gives you the best chance to win the Ultimate Fighter Tournament, of course you're going to do that, especially in a fight that's only two rounds long, right? That's true. There is some element to that whole structure that suggests that you should play it smart just to get through the damn thing, just kind of try and survive it. And yet for the UFC, you know, it's a reality show, so they need some sort of drama that they can sell. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's possible that uh, even the UFC, uh, maybe even Dana White are kind of getting sick of the same old Ultimate Fighter stuff. Uh, and maybe that's how it's coming out. Maybe that's what, what he's reacting to is not so much anything that any individual person is doing, but just that, goddamn, he's sick of being in that, that same training facility with the big ass tires over and over again. God, we can only hope, right? Like that, <laughs> it seems like the possibility that this could be a ray of light just shining into the dark dark cave that has become the ultimate fighter probably not though. but probably not that's going to do it for listener mail this week if you have a question comment a concern to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks you know how to get a hold of us you can uh email the podcast by going to the website comainevent.com and clicking the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast hey what else could you do while you're at comainevent.com Joe? Y- you could sign up for the uh, breakfast of champions newsletter that comes out every friday and is a second dose a heap and helping you might even 
even say of uh, what we offer here on the Co-Main Event Podcast, both to get you up to date uh, with what we missed from Monday until Friday, but also to let you know what's coming the next week on the CME. Speaking of which, uh, you want to explain to the people that we're not going to do the uh, White Elephant Essay Contest winners this week? Okay, we're still working on the White Elephant Essay still Contest winners. Still wading through those. Uh, which I've is, actually started to read a few, I though. Have, I have as well. It's a, I believe it's, you know, let's bright side this. It's a testament to how many entries we got. It is. Right? Uh, and choosing a winner is not going to be easy because I've already seen some good ones. Um, but I'm also uh, throwing in a little extra something for the winners and even the the honorable mention placers in this. Uh, I got in the mail a box of UFC trading cards from oh, Tops. Nice. You know they do. They have some deal with Tops now, where Tops is making these UFC cards, uh, and I got a whole hell of a lot of them uh, just just sent to me in the mail. Uh, and I don't know what to do with them, so I'm going to give them to you guys. Just dry, Yeah, those would be easy to drop in whatever we're sending to the winners. You're not going to carefully take them out of the pack and put them in those plastic sleeves and create big books of... You know, I might take the, I might open up the packs and put some gum in there and then close it back up just because I think that that's how it ought to work if you're getting, you know, a pack of cards. Yeah, sports cards should come with a uh, concrete piece of gum that just turns to dust in your mouth. Yeah. That's half the fun. All right. Well, that's going to do it for the intro portion of the show. We're going to get started with round number one right now. So Ben, uh, I went out to dinner with my wife on Friday night, and uh, where's the story going? Is it going to get weird? It's going to get really, really weird. We met this other nice couple who said that they were into something <laughs> called swinging. There was another another couple there sitting at the next oh, table. God, I'm out, I'm out trying to have a nice evening with my wife. About halfway through the meal, my ears kind of perk up. I realize the dude at the next table is telling the girl that he's on a date with, or his his girlfriend. I don't know which about all of the stuff that happened to Chael Sonnen this week. Wow. Which you can't get away. I just yeah, just trying to have a nice some family time, you know, going out on a Friday night, dude next to us talking about Chael Sonnen. Uh, I imagine you angrily just throwing your napkin onto the plate. <laughs> well, I was going to do that anyway. Uh, old man Dundas style. But uh I guess to to start this round about Chael Sonnen, I just want to ask you gut feeling. Do you think that Chael Sonnen's retirement is for real? Is he gone for good, or is this just a dodge? You know, I always am suspicious of fighter retirements, especially when they come under any form of duress, uh, whether it's you know losing a, a big fight or, or something like that. I think a, a drug test failure counts as duress. So I'm going to say my suspicion is that he might try and come back at some point. Uh, although, I don't know, if you give it a year or two, he is getting late 30s. You know, he's getting up to that point where he'd consider uh, retiring anyway. Who knows? Maybe these other avenues in his career take off and he just finds that, you know, he, he doesn't have time to, to train and, and prepare to return to fighting, which I think would just be fine with all of us. 
Yeah, I'm going to come down on the other side of the coin, although I definitely see where you're coming from. I think with a normal fighter retirement just prior to a Nevada State Athletic Commission hearing where you're definitely going to get suspended for your second positive drug test in your career, uh, I would totally think that a fighter retirement would be nothing more than a dodge and a way to kind of soften the blow of the suspension, uh, you know, give you some something else to do while you're sitting out the nine months or a year or whatever that uh, you're not going to be able to go to Nevada and fight. Uh, with Chelsea and though I almost like it feels silly to say I believe anything that he says but like I kind of believe uh, that this retirement might stick with him because you know we know that he's a smart guy obviously he's a good broadcaster in his capacity over on Fox Sports 1 I think he's a guy who has other interests and can find other stuff to do although maybe not quite as much stuff as back when he was allowed to be a licensed real estate agent uh, before that whole debacle um, but it had that end by the way poorly yeah poorly uh, but then he ran for political office so well he was forced to drop out after he was charged with a federal crime uh, but, you know, I like I feel like, you, as you said, he's a guy in his late 30s. I think that he could be a guy who who will find other stuff in his life. Uh, and, you know, if he's as legitimately excited for fatherhood, the prospect of fatherhood, as, as he says he's going to be, I don't have a hard time believing that we won't see Chael, uh, you know, fight again. I do think, though, I'm going to leave the door open for this, that the weird, uh, like, 180-degree turnaround between the uh, defiant just saying stuff, Chael Sonnen, that was on Fox Sports the day that we first found out that he had failed this test, and the uh, the Chael Sonnen that showed up to retire on on uh, UFC tonight, the next night, a day later. Yeah, such a turnaround that that you know, and this is just speculation, but I would I personally would leave the door open for the idea that somebody called him, someone in an official capacity called him and was like, "Hey, man, it's we, over. Let's, we got to make this go away. Like yeah. this is just too too much." It is a weird thing when you start to think of it as something that's making this problem go away, right? Because he did sound like defiant. I'm going to fight this. This is totally unfair to me. Uh, and But also tried a bunch of different strategies all jammed into that one uh, Fox Sports 1 interview where it was basically the, I never borrowed your plate. Uh, I didn't crack your plate. That plate was cracked when you gave it to me kind of scenario. Just trying absolutely everything. Yeah, like, it was weird. Did, I didn't break the rules. Okay, I did. But the rules are nonsense. Nobody even knows what the rules are. It's impossible to find out. And we only get punished after we've broken them. Uh, yeah, yeah. That was a really weird approach to the, that whole thing. Uh, and then to, to make that quick turnaround, like you said, and announce it makes you think that after seeing how that played out on TV, then that's when maybe the, the UFC decided, okay, this isn't going to work. You know, we're not going to be able to chill Sonnen our way out of this one. Yeah. The weirdest thing about that initial, uh, appearance on America's pregame or whatever it's called where he went on with Mike Hill and did a just a bizarre 15 minute rambling interview which ended with Mike Hill apologizing to him and Chael Sonnen accepting his apology started and ended with the Fox anchor apologizing to Chael Sonnen uh you know what the weirdest thing about that was this was the first time that I could ever recall really seeing Chael Sonnen in over his head in an interview setting and it certainly wasn't because of the probing questions being asked by Mike Hill, who on numerous occasions referred to uh, the stuff that he had tested positive for as quote unquote banned substances or whatever. Uh, 
you know, which sent a message to me. But, uh, uh, this was the first time I recall, could recall sitting on my couch thinking like, wow, this guy can't talk himself out of this one. And the longer and harder he tries, he's just digging himself deeper, which I felt like was a tipping point for Chael Sonnen. It, it because was. for so many years, we've seen him talk his way out of, uh, tight spots, you know, Much not the tighter spots, right? Not the least of which is him like cracking jokes about pleading guilty to money laundering right. in federal court. But this is one where I sat back and thought, wow, like, it's over. Yeah. You know, and that is like the weird, like kind of tragic irony to it is like, this was probably the one he could have talked his way out of the easiest, I would think. Because, I mean, and this is the one where it seemed like the most unnecessary of all the troubles that he's gotten himself into. Because if you wanted to make an argument that you needed these drugs after being on this other drug... You could. Like, there is some basis to that, that you you would need this stuff just to keep your body from going into some kind of total shutdown mode after years of being on this controversial hormone therapy. And the problem, though, is that, like, he just went about it in such a Chael Sonnen way and with all the Chael Sonnen baggage that he was already carrying around with him. Because, like we said uh, in the Breakfast of Champions uh, email last week, what do you think would have happened if he'd have gone to the Nevada State Athletic Commission right after they uh, voted to get rid of TRT altogether and said, okay, look, I'm getting off the TRT. However, my doctor says I need this other stuff uh, in the meantime to help my body get back to normal. I think there's a pretty good chance they would have said yes to that. It seemed like they were in such a hurry to just kind of close the book on TRT and be done with it that they would have approved some kind of like transition period cool down for some of these guys who are coming off TRT. You could have made that case. And instead, he just tried to kind of do it in secret and get away with it uh, and got caught and then wants to offer this explanation, you know, like – try to talk his way around the issue once he's already caught. And because we're, we're so used to that Chael Sonnen approach for so many different things, it did seem like the point where everybody was finally like, no, no more of this. Like, we're tired of it. it it's clear that, like, you don't seem to know exactly what you're saying here. You're just trying a bunch of different arguments to try and make the whole thing go away. And it just felt kind of vaguely insulting. Right. Uh, like, especially when he's trying to claim that nobody knows what the rules are and there's no way to find out. Is, right. there, is there an 800 number I can call? Yeah. I mean, it's right on the internet. Everybody but you can find it easily. Right. Yeah. Then the best argument that he had to articulate during this Fox Sports appearance was, just like you said, that the Nevada State Athletic Commission really abruptly banned TRT uh, back in late February and they didn't offer a path forward for guys who had been using it for years with like the tacit approval of both the NSAC and the UFC, which legitimately put all of those guys we think in a tight medical spot. Yeah. So you would like to think that he could have called up the Nevada State Athletic Commission and said, hey, in order to like try to kickstart my own endocrine system again and like try to uh, restart my own natural testosterone production, I have to get on these other banned substances. Uh, is that okay with you? Or should I plan on like sitting out six months? Like, what should we do here? But like you said, instead of just doing that, he went on TV and tried to make the argument that the Nevada State Athletic Commission doesn't have a website, which it does, doesn't have a phone number to call which it does and they're very easily reachable and doesn't have anyone in the office that you can ask questions to which it does yes every time i've ever called the nevada state athletic commission before uh they've answered like before the echo of the first ring is quiet in the earpiece like they they literally seem to be sitting by the phone way more so than other athletic commissions i mean i don't know if you've tried getting in touch with like you know the texas state athletic commission or, or some of the other 
states where they don't see a ton of fights and something weird happens there and then you've got to call the athletic commission. A lot of those are really tough to get somebody on the phone and, and get somebody to give you some straight answers. And the Nevada State Athletic Commission, uh, way better than that. I mean, it is kind of a transition time after Keith Kaiser left for them, but they still, I mean, I've called them since then, uh, and they're easy to, to get somebody on the phone that you can talk to. So that argument doesn't really hold up. But I mean, it also, though, I think highlights what one of the big problems with TRT in the first place, because these drugs that he got caught for are primarily on the banned substances list because of how often they are paired with like steroid regimens, like toward uh, people cycling off of steroids and onto this other stuff. And that's the, the, the chief reason why they're on that, those, those banned lists in the first place. And if you're making the argument as a lot of Chael Sonnen ardent defenders, and there are plenty of them have like, Hey, he's not, he's not cheating. He's just using these drugs that steroid cheaters uh, most commonly use. You're kind of admitting something about the whole TRT phenomenon in the first place, aren't you? Yeah, and even if you weren't, they're still on the banned substance list. They're still banned year-round in and out of competition. So regardless of what they're used for, you right. can't take an, them. That's another part of his the, the thing that was really in, kind of intellectually insulting about his argument was like, hey, I was out of competition. I mean – then you're wrong for two reasons. Because one, no, you weren't. It was like uh, two weeks after you received a license and less than two months before the fight. I mean, that is in competition for an MMA fighter. Uh, and also, those drugs are banned in and out of competition. So it doesn't even matter. Like, it's just infuriating to sit there and listen to him make that argument. Right. And then to add uh, just a strange epilogue, a weird addendum onto the career of Chael Sonnen, which I guess we all would have expected considering how the rest of it went, uh, he gives this retirement announcement on UFC Tonight that airs live on Fox Sports 1, and then the next day, the version that shows up on the internet uh, that was posted to the UFC on Fox YouTube channel is just completely different. Like, they just completely filmed it over again and put out a different version on the internet, one where he he... On the live one, he claimed once again that he was out of competition and took this out of competition test. And then at the end of it, he thanks a bunch of people that have helped him in his career. And one of the people he thanked was Anderson Silva uh, for being a, such a great dance partner. And then he's there with Kenny Florian and Kenny Florian says to him, you know, thanks for all your years that you've given to this sport. We'll definitely remember that rivalry with Anderson Silva. And Sonnen says, well, we worked hard on that one, which was, was kind of like a nod to like the fact that maybe most of it was just theater. And then... Uh, uh, the version that shows up online, not only is does he articulate all of his points in a lot more clear fashion, but he also takes out the thing where he claimed that he uh, failed an out-of-competition test, probably because that part was verifiably not true. And also they took out the part where he thanked Anderson Silva at the end, which I thought was kind of a bummer, because even if it was kind of a wink-wink, nod-nod thing at the camera, like as I watched it, I kind of thought it was nice. Like at the very end, I was like, oh, that's, that's kind of cool. He thanked Anderson Silva for like uh, basically uh, vaulting him into this super superstardom status that he then enjoyed for the last few years of his career. Do you think that this would have gone uh, totally differently if, for one, he hadn't just jumped on the TV uh, a week or two ago to go off on Vanderlei Silva for running away from the same drug test that he himself failed? Uh, so the hypocrisy is a little too much. Um, and also Fox Sports 1, perfectly happy to, to keep putting him on state-run TV to, to spew that hypocrisy. Right. Um, or do you think it could have been different if he had got on there right away on America's pregame or whatever it is and just said, you know what? I screwed up here. I'm sorry. I'm going to take my punishment uh, and uh, 
you know, then we'll see what happens after that. Well, let me just say this. I don't think that it possibly could have gone any worse for him as it played out the way it did. Um, and, and I guess, uh, as a uh, 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 just a way to wrap up this this discussion, we should point out that Chael Sonnen's retirement still only exists, has completely been encapsulated inside the UFC slash Fox Sports umbrella. So to people that always email us or, or hit us up on Twitter or whatever to ask why we make a big deal out of the UFC Fox Sports partnership and how it's kind of weird that this fight promoter also has this quasi news show that it runs well, because of stuff like this. Yeah. Because if you go on 60 Minutes, for example, a legitimate independent news show and give a weird retirement announcement where you make, you make statements that aren't true and then sort of admit at the end of it that the greatest feud you were ever involved in was all for show, you don't get a chance to re-record that. <laughs> yes, And then true. they put out a largely sanitized version on the internet. That's just one example of how weird this is. But we got to move on around to let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll get out of out of this round. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, I don't know if you saw, Chad, but on Saturday night during UFC 174, uh, Joe Benavidez took over the UFC's Twitter. You know how they do the thing or they kind of give the Twitter keys to, to a fighter uh, during a fight night. And it was during one of the more boring fights, I think probably during the Arlovsky-Shab fight, he tweeted out a picture uh, and uh, pointed out that it was something that this was him with a signed Ted Nugent album that uh, Clay Guida had sent to him. And you look closer at this picture of Joe Benavidez holding the Ted Nugent album, and you think to yourself, wait a minute, is the signed Ted Nugent album signed by Ted Nugent, or is it signed by Clay Guida? Uh, and I reached out to Joe Benavidez to ask about that. Turns out... Yep, totally signed by Clay Guida. Just sent it, signed it himself, sent it to the Team Alpha Male gym out of nowhere. Joe Benavides walks in one day, hey, you got something in the mail. It's Ted Nugent Scream Dream signed by Clay Guida. Are you fucking kidding me? That is an awesome, awesome move by Clay Guida. Isn't that just an awesome thing to do? See, like, just, you, you never know when you're going to get a, a gift from the guy where he's just going to sign somebody else's album and send it to you. You just broke off the rare positive. Are you fucking kidding me? I had to. I had to. Clay Guida, he already seems like, you know, wherever you think of him as a fighter, Clay Guida seems like a pretty awesome dude. Uh, this just solidifies it for me. Are you fucking kidding me? That is awesome. That is awesome. Ben, this week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to the uh, Tyron Woodley sponsorship that we saw during the Rory McDonald fight, which we're going to talk about in the next round but i think you know what i'm talking about the large sponsorship across his fanny uh for dude wipes dude wipes my first are you fucking kidding me goes out to the existence of a thing called dude wipes uh which appear to be all purpose wipes for men where you just dudes you mean dudes i mean you go to their website and it's got this quote uh pretty much front and center if you're still wiping with just toilet paper you're a chump and your ass hates you for it any red-blooded american knows dude wipes are something you never leave the crib without so first of all are you fucking kidding me (laughs) second of all the second part of my are you fucking kidding me is that is this the most successful fighter sponsorship by a product in terms of raising awareness for that product in history are you fucking kidding me everyone talking about dude wipes two days after ufc 174 whereas you know you put muscle farm on a dude's thigh not the same reaction fucking kidding me 
Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, oops, Rory McDonald did it again. Went out there, completely shut down an opponent's offense, picked up the decision win. Never any question about uh, whether he was going to get the nod from the judges after three rounds of that action against Tyron Woodley. However, does this make Rory McDonald somebody you want to see fight for the UFC welterweight title, yes or no? Uh, hard to say. No, in that the, is not an option. It was no, a yes or no. No, in the immediate. Okay. I mean, I think. Don't I, you? God, you just keep screwing this up. Well, don't I gotta you? say something else, right? I can't just say no. We still just got say no and sit there got, like, in silence. Twenty minutes to fill on this podcast. <laughs> uh, I, you know, it was a good win for him. I don't think that you can take that away from him. He definitely went out there and overwhelmed Tyron Woodley and kind of blew him out of the water, really, uh, in terms of of the scores that were that were read at the end of it. But at the same time, I, you know, definitely didn't put himself in the pole position for a uh, a title shot with the Matt Brown, Robbie Lawler fight coming up that I think everyone expects to be a barn burner. Um, and I think Rory McDonald kind of said it himself in the, in the post fight interview that, uh, you know, he's ready if someone gets injured. I feel like that's his best hope immediately for a title shot against Johnny Hendricks is to, to hope that, you know, the, the carnage is such during the Matt Brown, Robbie Lawler fight that, one of those guys isn't ready to jump back in the cage. I mean, a lot can happen between now and when Johnny Hendricks comes back from injury, which I don't think is going to happen uh, until September or October. The fall, uh, yeah. Uh, so that's, you know, the world could look completely different in the welterweight division by the, by the time that, that happens. But I mean, we saw this after, uh, uh, Rory McDonald lost that fight to Robbie Lawler. Dana White came out and said he's kind of got this offense where he just shuts down what the other guy does. Uh, and that's absolutely what he did to Tyron Woodley. And, and it was impressive to watch him do it, I guess. But at the same time, I don't know that we've seen a Rory McDonald where he was able to go out and do something in the cage that was super, super impressive since maybe when he TKO'd Shea Mills almost two years or more than two years ago at this point. So yeah. um, the guy's still super young. I talked to him this past week uh, and, and he made it sound very much like he was not sweating getting a title shot. He knows he's got a lot of time left and uh, he doesn't want to rush it. Uh, and I think he just has this perception that he's really good and is just going to keep doing what he's doing. And eventually the title will come to him. You know, and it's probably, I don't know if the actual title will come to him, but that title shot seems like it definitely will come to him. You know, he's like 24. Uh, it looks like there are only so many people in line right now for that title shot that you can wait out. The winner of Lawler Brown is going to get his shot at Johnny Hendricks. Uh, and then, you know, as long as you don't do anything to screw up between now and then, you'll probably be next in line there. So it is kind of a sound strategy on his part, and I guess a smart strategy. I, I wonder, though, I mean, now at this point, I think, like, we have to give him credit and say that it's not something that his opponents are doing. Even though Dana White keeps laying it on his opponents, saying, you know, well, Jake Ellenberger, he didn't go out there and... And, and pull the trigger. Ty, Tyron Woodley, he chokes in a big fight. Obviously, Rory McDonald is doing this to people. It's not just that he has the great luck to be able to keep fighting guys who, who freeze up and, and don't do anything. Like he is doing that to people and he deserves his credit for doing that. I just don't know if that's the kind of thing that, uh, is going to make you a big money, 
champion in, in the UFC. I, I don't know if I see him doing that kind of thing with Johnny Hendricks. Right. And like, I think you just were saying this. It's, it's an impressive skill to have to go out there and discombobulate another professional fighter to the point that at least this, this past weekend, Tyron Woodley just looked like he didn't know what to do. Didn't look like just totally one dimensional. Like he, he didn't know how to combat any of the stuff that, that Rory McDonald was doing to him. But at the same time, maybe it's, uh, almost in a Demetrius Johnson kind of way, although arguably less impressive that like, that's a really cool skill to have, but no one wants to watch that. Right. Like, I mean, like, no, I don't want to dump all over Rory McDonald because this is an impressive performance. And the thing that he did against, against Tyron Woodley was, was like I said, impressive, but at the same time, like not, not the kind of thing that's going to impress the guys who run this company. Like that's not what they're looking for. That's true. And you make it makes you wonder if you can only do that to a certain level of fighter because we saw, you know, his fight with Robbie Lawler uh, that where Lawler took the decision over him and seemed like he had him in trouble there. It, it doesn't seem like he's quite able to do that against the guys who are a little bit better or just a, a little bit step ahead of that. Um, so, you know, that does give you some questions there. How about, though, the guy seems to have, I don't know if off-putting is the right word for it, but a different personality uh, and seems to be kind of reveling in that at, at this point. Uh do you think that that's a good thing? It makes him different than most other fighters in a lot of ways. It also makes it so it seems like nobody's really sure what to do with this guy. Yeah, you know, I I interviewed him this past week, and it was one of I'm those sorry. UFC. Uh, it's one of those ten minute UFC interviews that they set up before these events, and it was the weird kind where you let the guy go before your ten minutes is up because I kind of asked the guy all my questions, and is he's just not really. Uh, not really going anywhere with them. And, and in a way, like he seems super polite and like a nice kid. And, and, uh, uh, I guess you would say Canadian, like just seemed very Canadian, very polite. Uh, but also seemed to like make a point of just disagreeing with everything that like every assertion or question I tried to ask him at one point, frankly, because I was kind of like out of stuff. I started talking to him about fighting in, in Vancouver because he's originally from British Columbia, even though he lives uh, in Montreal now to train at TriStar. And I was kind of asking him, like, do you feel any pressure? Like, because some guys really like fighting at home, but some guys see it as a big headache. And he was kind of like, no, I don't really see any pressure. And I said, well, you, you don't have any like family and friends bugging you for tickets th- this week. And he was like, no, I don't really have too many friends. Uh, or too many family. Oh. Uh, and those that I do have know that I don't respond to, to them during fight week. So they just kind of know to leave me alone. Uh, and I was like, Oh wow, that was, that was sad and weird, man. <laughs> I was expecting to get sad during yeah, this interview. I'm, I'm sorry that, sorry about that. But it's just like everything I asked him at one point, he said that he wants to, uh, exceed the level that George St. Pierre was at in the sport, which was maybe the most interesting thing that he said to me. So I asked him like exactly what he meant by that, whether or not he wanted to be a superstar. And he was just kind of like, no, I don't, I don't want to be a superstar. So I was kind of like, okay, well, George St. Pierre is one of the biggest superstars (laughs) we've ever seen. So like, kind of what do you mean? And he just like, he was like, well, I just want to, I just want to exceed what he was able to do in the martial arts. And I said, okay, so you mean athletically? And he said, no, not athletically. <laughs> God, I was just like, on, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop trying then, I guess. But not, you seem like a nice kid, but obviously not uh, a guy who's going to light the world on fire in a media standpoint. Yeah. And it seemed like people for a while had seized on the, like, he's a 
cold-blooded psychopath kind of thing which to me that aspect of that's sort of off-putting like to to continually over and over again make that joke about a guy just because he is kind of like awkward that that feels mean to me that that aspect of it <laughs> well i mean he is in a business where he, he beats people up so i guess it, it's it's not like you know saying that about a kindergarten teacher uh but it is like that now seems like something that people looked at because He's not giving you a whole lot, but he seems like maybe there there ought to be something there with him. And so people just kind of projected that kind of thing onto him and actually might have been better for him than people just being like, ah, he's just kind of weird and boring. Uh, like even when you watch those like UFC embedded clips where it's like, you know, him talking about how he's going through the process of making his breakfast and you're like, man, I don't even want to know what ended up on the cutting room floor there if that's the stuff that gets through. Right. And like, didn't do him any favors to be juxtaposed alongside Tyron Woodley, who seemed like a totally awesome family man in that, that entire embedded series where like everything, every scene of Tyron Woodley was just basically him like being like, well, my kids are going to cause a huge scene now. We're going to try to go to the airport or go to church or whatever. And my kids are just going to cry the whole way, which kind of made Tyron Woodley seem totally likable. And then they would cut to like, just, you know, you knew they were using any footage they had of Rory McDonald, like laughing or like <laughs> telling a joke or just picking up his bags at the airport, just like, and feeling at some point like, man, we just got to get 30 seconds of Rory McDonald in this thing somehow. Yeah. Something where he looks like a human being. Uh, but it does, you know, if you're Matt Brown or Robbie Lawler after this weekend and this weekend's performance and just a whole uh, entire Rory McDonald bag, you got to be breathing easier. And it's like, all right, that guy is not cutting in line everything is still going to according to plan here. I can still go out there, uh, throw them bungalows and that fight uh, in San Jose in July. And the winner of that can be pretty assured that he will actually get the title shot as promised. That's what we think. Yeah. Um, before we close this down, let's talk a little bit about Tyron Woodley. You mentioned it at the beginning of this round after the fight, Dana White comes out and says, this guy chokes in big fights. You look at his record. He's 13 and three His only two previous losses before this were that weird split decision to Jake Shields, uh, in one of his early UFC fights, I believe. And then, uh, previous to that, uh, he got stopped right by Nate Marquardt yes, in their, did. in their title in their fight for the vacant strike force welterweight title. So that, might be a, a, an instance where he let down in big fights, but like, it seems like a harsh criticism to me to it say does. that a guy chokes in big fights after only like one or two instances where he just hasn't got it done. Well, and it wasn't like he did absolutely nothing in this fight. I mean, he did seem like for the first two rounds, he, he seemed like confused by Roy McDonald's style. And, you know, Roy McDonald definitely, you can tell that that's his plan because he, at the very start of the fight, just sprints across the cage basically and traps Tyron Woodley against the fence. And Woodley spends the next two rounds there, just unable to get his back up off the fence. Um, which is a smart game plan if you're Roy McDonald. You know, you, if you're worried about the guy's takedowns and you want to have all that open space behind you to, to sprawl and, and to defend that takedown and to, to limit, uh, where Tyron Woodley can possibly go if you have him backed up against the fence there. You know, there, there, he doesn't have a whole lot of, uh, options as far as movement. So, uh, it's it really worked well. And, but there was a moment like in the third round where Tyron Woodley did seem like, okay, fuck it. Let's go out here and just kind of throw some stuff and see. All right. Third round or maybe the second round. I think it was the third round where, but he, he opens up and, and attacks a lot more, uh, and seemed to have a little bit more success with it. And, and then it at least changed, forced Roy McDonald to change what he was doing. And it's kind of the same criticism though 
that Dana White uh, leveled at Jake Ellenberger after his fight with Robbie Lawler where he's saying, ah, oh, I just couldn't pull the trigger. Well, man, he tried. You know, there was a fight moment in that one where Ellenberger realized, okay, I'm losing this fight. I got to just kind of throw caution to the wind and go after the guy. And he did, and it didn't work. Uh, you know, Robbie Lawler just came back with even more and ended up putting him away. I think it is unfair to sit there and criticize the guy after that and say, like, well, you know, he never – opened up and went after it and, and took a chance and tried to do anything. He choked. He froze up. He didn't. You know, he tried. He did try to do something else. It's just that that something else didn't work. Yeah. So we think Rory McDonald now in the mix, as they say, although it does seem like the winner of the Matt Brown, Robbie Lawler fight is probably going to shoot up to the number one contender spot and fight Johnny Hendricks when he comes back in the fall. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, it seemed like an awful long haul through UFC 174 to get to the main event uh, between Demetrius Johnson and Ali Bagautinov. The last you were just waiting to say Bagautinov, weren't you, you? You always say that, and I always say we're doing a fucking round about this dude's fight. Like I have to say his name. Yeah, but you love it. I can see it in your face. You 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 really look forward to it. A name that's kind of seems difficult to pronounce, but you nail it. You're so fucking proud of yourself. You know what? I'm just going to go with Ollie Bags from here on out. Just so just shut your mouth. Don't rob yourself of that joy. It's so fleeting. So the last four fights on the UFC 174 card all went the distance. By the time we get to the Demetrius Johnson versus Ollie Bags fight. Oh, come on. And it felt like a long haul. Uh, the the, the Arlovsky shop fight was a stinker. Historically bad, in fact. Uh, you know, Bader versus Cavalcanti was one-sided. McDonald versus Woodley was one-sided. Before we go any further, we didn't really mention it before. Was it weird to you? To, it seemed like Feijal was really weird in that fight, right? Like he, he just didn't he did want to seem, be there. He did seem disinterested. Yeah. He didn't okay. seem to have that fire. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, maybe a dude uh, the size of Ryan Bader goes out there, works his game on you. Like, that might make you want to go home pretty fast just yeah, because that's going to wear on you. Maybe something's going on in his personal life or injuries or something where some nights you show up and you just got to get your show money. That's kind of what it seemed like. Yeah, it's, it's possible. Uh, anyway, we get to the to the main event here, the, the flyweight championship fight. Demetrius Johnson goes out there and does what he does, which is Goddamn amazing, frankly. The thing that he does is, uh, uh, it's, it's, it like, it's actually like the cliche, like he's playing chess and everybody else is playing checkers, kind of is what it seems like out there. But at the end of this long, kind of bad pay per view, uh, this wasn't the thing that was going to turn it around for us. Uh, and, uh, we saw reports, people streaming to the exits. I don't know if that was a commentary on the, the, the Johnson Bago Tinoff fight, or if it was just because everybody showed up to see Rory McDonald and then left. Trying uh, to beat the traffic. Trying to beat the traffic. But, uh, Demetrius Johnson at this point, uh, kind of a, kind of, we know what he's going to do, even though he had two stoppages in his previous two title defenses. Do you think that this is a case where, uh, people kind of have this book on Johnson now that they know he's going to go out there and just kind of overwhelm his opponent with movement and quickness? Or do you think he was really hurt here by headlining this, this UFC 174 card that had otherwise just been pretty terrible i think maybe what a lot of it is is it's difficult to appreciate how difficult uh what he's doing actually is because he makes it look really easy like he 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 makes it look he's just like run circles around guys and his output is so high and and 
he seems to be in such total control that it, it kind of makes it seem as if it's not as impressive as it really is. And some of that might be also who he's doing it against, that like a guy like Ali Bagautinov, uh, maybe people don't really know him well enough to appreciate what it means for uh, a guy like Demetrius Johnson to completely overwhelm him. Uh, and so I think it could be like a combination of all that stuff uh, and the fact that it seems like, okay, you're in for five rounds of this every time the guy shows up. I think some of that is that they just can't get the right perspective to appreciate exactly what it is he's doing. Yeah, and uh, he he's obviously fighting that battle still of being a 125-pound man in a in a fight sport world that really likes to, to tune in to watch heavyweights, I think. Uh, it's strange for Johnson, though, because, you know, we talked about uh, Tyron Woodley and Rory McDonald being on Embedded. All the stuff with McDonald on Embedded, or I mean, uh, Johnson on Embedded, and they had him on uh, UFC Tonight the week of the fight, did an interview with him. He seems like a very smart, very likable guy, and then he gets in the cage and is just like a generation ahead of everybody else that he fights, uh, and yet it seems like just nobody's real excited about it, which seems like kind of a shame. And then I wonder if also uh, we get into sort of Hen and Barrow territory where part of what seems like people are a little bit reluctant to grab onto him or maybe a little bit reactionary about it is that the UFC, at least during the fight, seems to be working so goddamn hard to tell us how badly our minds should be fucking blown while we're watching it, right? That There has to be some element of that, like this sort of backlash against the push. And there is this push especially with the flyweights where it's this thing where people you know we've had the conversation for long enough of hey the flyweights don't seem to draw as well the fans don't seem to like them as much and then this kind of response of telling people well you should like it you know if you're a real fight fan that kind of argument again uh and then the backlash to that of people just being like don't tell me what to like, which is fair, you know, but watching that fight, the commentary, you know, the, the commentary was just 25 minutes of telling you how awesome and how amazing uh, Demetrius Johnson is, which even if you agree and even if you are, you know, seeing the same things they're seeing, it does get hard, like to not want to push back against that because that, that just feels weird, right? To sit through all that. Yeah, especially at the very beginning of the fight where uh, Ali Bagutinov's not winning, but he's making it go. reasonably. Uh, yeah, first round was kind of close. Reasonably competitive through the first couple of rounds. Then eventually he just gets overwhelmed. But it did kind of seem like Mike Goldberg and, and Joe Rogan only had eyes for Demetrius Johnson uh, from start to finish. I guess you got to give them uh, uh, some respect for putting the flyweight title as the as the uh main event of a pay-per-view just to to give the flyweights the same sort of panache and consideration that you give all the other weight classes they probably aren't going to do a tremendous buy rate from this one i'm not sure this was the kind of performance that is going to swing a lot of people into the you know if if you came into this pay-per-view not liking the flyweights i don't know that you came out like in the flyways. Yeah. Um, well, and it seems like something, you know, he's going to run out of opponents here pretty quickly. It seems like we're talking about a rematch between uh, Mighty Mouse and John Dodson, which, hey, I, I won't mind seeing that. I think that it was an interesting fight the first time around. I think Dodson will only be tougher for him uh, the second time. You know, I think he got kind of worn down by that superior pace that, that Johnson puts on. I think that with a little bit more experience and to be able to plan and deal with that, I think it's going to be an interesting fight. But then after that, you know, assuming Johnson wins that fight, uh, then you start getting into dicey territory where what do you do? Do you have him fight Brad Pickett again who just dropped down and who has a, a win over him? 
uh, at bantamweight? Uh, do you have him fight a guy like Zach Makovsky just so you can show off what uh, a UFC champ can do to a former Bellator champ? You know, you start running out of territory there, and that's why you know I wrote a, a column for today that says that you know basically if if you want to be able to to prove how awesome Demetrius Johnson is and maybe get through to that next level for the mainstream fans to uh, get them to respect him. He might have to be the dude who goes up a weight class and does the super fight thing. I mean, we always wanted to do it with George St. Pierre and Anderson Silva and those guys, but he seems like one of the guys who could more realistically do it. And if you want us to appreciate, you know, the full complement of his skills, it might have to be something like that just so uh, we appreciate what he can do. And it's not just two tiny guys banging away at each other. Uh, either that, or you just kind of have to make, the other guys in the flyweight division seem like they are stars because like you just mentioned these guys, man. But you know, if, 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 uh, well, let's start here. Demetrius Johnson's only been flyweight champion for less than two years. He's already beat all of the guys who are listed as the top five contenders to his title in the UFC official rankings. So you are dealing with a flyweight division that, that's still pretty shallow, but it's not like it's completely devoid of, of other contenders for him. I think you're right in saying that this, uh, John Dodson fight could be the best. Uh, fight that the flyweight division has to offer right now, both in terms of action in the cage and also in, in the lead up, because I think both, uh, Johnson and, and Dodson are guys that can do media pretty well. But, you know, you've got a, a fairly compelling fight between Zach Makovsky and Juicier Formigia coming up, or as we like to call him, uh, Juicier De Silva, since that's his name. Uh, <laughs> the, the winner of that, you know, if, we'll, we'll have, uh, a, a little win streak going. I think Makovsky will have three wins in the UFC in a row if he wins that you could see uh uh the the winner of that essentially being propped up as a number one contender and then you mentioned brad pickett he's going to fight uh ian mccall and if he wins if pickett emerges from that one it'd be hard to deny him number one contender status so i wonder if at least part of it is like you got to really put some promotional weight behind these guys in terms of like propping up a guy like zach makovsky or a guy like brad pickett as a future challenger for your flyweight champion because i think even in the instance of of ali Utinov, it's a situation where uh here, here's a guy stepping up to get a shot at the title that m- most fans might not know about yeah and that is kind of the problem that the ufc has faced with uh, the flyweights is that uh, you know, how do you get people to care about the flyweights if you don't let them see the flyweights? You know, they can kind of bury it at times before on prelim cards or on lesser seen uh, fight cards. Not really the guys you get put out front uh, on the big shows uh, too often. And then it's hard for us to appreciate what it means to beat one of these guys if we've never seen how they got here in the first place. I think that is true. Uh, and it might just be the kind of thing that takes time. I mean, we would have made these same arguments about the featherweight division or the bantamweight division uh, you know, a year or two ago. And now that it's had some time to grow and add fighters to it and we get to see them in action, you know, those are a couple of the most exciting divisions out there. So it could just take time. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, I think that the the flyweight division will become deeper and uh you'll see some trickle down from bantamweight and probably some new guys uh showing up so i hope that the division has a bright future um demetrius johnson to me seems like a really good uh uh, you know, guy to, to lead the division in, in terms of, uh, likability and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, if you get some hitters coming up, if you can find some flyweights that, that knock people out, I think that, that, uh, you'll be able to, 
to sell him as as potential threats to his title reign. Anyway, let's do uh, just saying stuff, Ben, and then we will get out of here for this week. What's your just saying stuff for this week? Well, Chad, as I'm sure you noticed, uh, Brendan Schaub changed his nickname. He was the hybrid. Now he is Big Brown. Yep, I noticed. Speaking of dude wipes. Yeah. Uh, apparently it has something to do with the, the podcast that he does uh, f- uh, with Fox Sports. Um, I don't really know exactly how, and it didn't seem like the UFC was really uh, going to go out of its way to explain that to us. It just kind of mentioned that it was because of his podcast that he changed his nickname and that he's big and he's brown, which I don't know whether that makes a ton of sense. Uh, I'm just saying, you know, hey, change your nickname if you want. It's not like the hybrid wasn't exactly a, a great nickname to start with. But you do realize that now, if your nickname is going to be Big Brown, there's no way for us to hear it and not think at least a little bit about poop, right? Yeah. I'm just saying, we're going to think about poop. Yeah. At least for a fraction of a second every time we hear your nickname. Yeah, poop. J- just saying. Your name is basically poop. Just saying. Yeah. Ben, this week I'm just saying, I don't know if you noticed this, but I believe the last two celebrities that have been shown on camera at a UFC event were first Mel Gibson a couple weeks looking ago. Jacked. Just looking jacked. Look and Tony. then uh, speaking of looking jacked, this week Tim Tebow was in the house to support good friend, we're told, uh, Brendan Schaub. Uh, just, I think, for starters, proving that there's no celebrity who can show up at the UFC with, with too much personal baggage to then appear on camera, right? <laughs> and also, Tim Tebow, a dude, as I mentioned on Twitter, is a guy who's been around the block with this. You know he knows how it's going to be, because when he sees the camera showing him on the big screen, he makes the facial equivalent of Johnny Hendricks' voice in saying, oh, man, because he just knows he's going to get booed. Uh this week, we got a couple of emails from people saying, hey, man, let's get Tim Tebow in the octagon if he's a big uh, UFC fan. So I guess uh, I'm just saying, man, Tim Tebow is going to make so much money just going around giving inspirational speeches to little kids for the rest of his life. There's no way you would ever see him strap the gloves on, right? Who knows, Chad? Just saying. Who knows? Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to, I don't know what the hell we'll talk about next week. There's no show, no UFC show this week. I don't, maybe we should uh, go out to dinner with our wives and see if we can overhear some more conversations. And no, carry us see, that's a rounds. trick. I'm not going to get tricked into swinging with you and your wife. I, <laughs> I know what's up. As for right now, like though, a hot tub? who knows? Right? <laughs> we are done. We are through. We are out. So how... How much money do you think you make giving inspirational speeches to little kids? You seem to think it's pretty broad. It's a lucrative business. Yeah. Those little kids are still showing up with like a $100 bill water in their sweaty clothes. A lot of people don't know this, but little kids have tons of disposable income. You know, they don't, they don't